there's a question that I've wondered myself. Um, I've heard that dinosaurs were a creation of man, that uh, through genetic manipulation, now I haven't really read about that, but that's something that I've heard out there. The question is, were dinosaurs real? And from what time frame? I believe that the dinosaurs are real. I was kind of implying that earlier. I, you know, we dig up their uh, entire skeletons. I participated in one of those digs, and there are paleontologists working all over the world, including in North America, that are digging these creatures up. So yeah, I, I believe that they were real. Second part of your question, did humans make them? Yeah. What, it, within Adventist circles and some creationist circles, the suggestion is made that uh, perhaps after the fall, that uh, Satan or Satan-inspired humans uh, practiced some kind of uh, you know, genetic experiments and created these monsters like Tyrannosaurus Rex. Uh, sometimes they will allude to statements that Ellen White makes about there was after the fall the amalgamation of man and beast and that perhaps uh, the amalgamation of the beast refers to humans um, breeding animals and crossbreeding animals and created some of these monsters. The fact is, as an archaeologist, I don't know whether that's true or not. To me, that's one of those things you might call it, you know, a speculation. Maybe it's sanctified speculation. I don't deny Ellen White's statements. She talks about that. A lot of people aren't quite sure what she's talking about. Some people talk about crossbreeding between humans and animals. I don't think that's what she meant. Um, but whether that refers to the dinosaurs, I honestly don't know. To me, it's a possibility, but on the basis of what we have in the spirit of prophecy, the Bible, and in science, I couldn't say that for sure. So maybe, I don't know. Okay, so there are some mysteries that are yet to be. Yeah, dinosaurs exist. I, I believe that God created a, a prototype for dinosaur, but just like, you know, the cats, you know, I don't think lions went around eating people initially, and Isaiah seems to suggest there'll come a time when the lion and the lamb will lay down together, and the lion won't gobble up the lamb. So I would suspect that there were lions before the fall, and their uh, practice was not to eat the lamb at that time, but something happened at the fall that changed them into, uh, into a carnivorous uh, animal. So maybe reptiles, you know, or dinosaur kinds of animals did the same thing. Maybe it didn't require a eugenic experiment. So, but I don't know. I'm also aware of the carnivore problem. You know, today in today's ecosystem, carnivores are absolutely essential. A lot of people say that shows that before the fall, there had to be lions to clean up the world. Um, I know from a biological point, that's a tricky question. However, it doesn't completely bother me. I don't know what the pristine world looked like. I don't know what role, you know, we have leaves decomposing. We have, you know, dead deer die in the woods and so forth. Uh, all I know is that the Bible does seem to point to a different nature of things before, that what we have now is not the ideal, and that in the world to come, it will be different again. Paul makes this incredibly unscientific statement that I tell you a mystery that this mortal flesh will put on immortality. Now, from a biological perspective, I have no idea what that means. Maybe some of my biology friends do. Um, I don't know what, you know, I've looked at flesh under a microscope, and, but it's always been mortal flesh. I've never seen immortal flesh, so I don't know what that means and how that will work exactly, but I do believe in the resurrection. Uh, I worked in a mortuary you know, for a little while when I was working my way through college, and I remember seeing people pray for their dead ones to come back to life again. I was very grateful when I was working there at night that none of them came back to life while I was there at least. But I do believe in a future resurrection, and I, I share the hopes of a lot of those grieving families. But there's just a lot of things I don't understand, and I prefer not to speculate on things I don't understand. Yeah. Okay, so you brought this up in your answer a little bit when you said that you don't know exactly what the world looked like. Mm -hmm. Well, we have a question related to that. From a scientific perspective, though, if you looked 
at the world on the morning after the first Sabbath, how old would you say it looked? That's called the apparent age theory. A lot of creationists speculate that if creation is true, when God made the world, did it have a mature appearance in some of its aspects, or was it all, you know, pristine? In other words, were Adam and Eve created as babies in diapers, or were they created as mature adults? Uh, we get the impression that they were created, they were talking to each other, interacting and so forth, that they were created as mature adults, even if they had just been created. We call that the apparent age idea that they were created as, you know, people uh, with maturity. Um, we suspect that when the trees were created in the Garden of Eden, they weren't just saplings, but they were maybe full-grown trees. We know that uh, when you cut a tree down today, if it's a mature tree, it's going to have rings, and that they typically represent a certain amount of time for those rings to form. If you cut down a tree in the Garden of Eden, would it have rings? I would think it would because those structures are necessary both for the tree to stand up and for the nutrients in the water and so forth to flow up and down. So I would feel comfortable thinking that a lot of aspects of the creation were created in a mature form, even geochemically. A certain aspe other aspects of our world could have been created in an advanced mature form. God doesn't give us explicit answers, so obviously everything I'm saying is an assumption, but I'm comfortable with it, and that may solve part of our apparent age problem. Things may have been created in an advanced age. Maybe even some uh, geochemical or physical systems looked much older than they really were. Don't know, but that's a possibility. Okay, so then when the Bible says that the world was without form and void, mm -hmm. does this imply, or can we interpret it as meaning that the rocks were millions of years old when the world was unformed? From a purely Hebrew perspective, I'm very comfortable linguistically. This is an argument that actually can go either way in Hebrew. You can read certain good Hebrew scholars that say, no, everything was created you know, at the beginning of the creation work. I think the majority of Hebrew scholars, including conservative evangelical types, uh, not the, necessarily the neo-evangelicals, but liberal scholars as well, will suggest that the uh, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that that is a um, kind of an introductory statement that suggests that at the very beginning of all time, God created the entire universe. Then, uh, and that, by the way, is called a mirrorism, the expression heavens and earth is kind of a literary mechanism. The Hebrews would uh, do a mirrorism is where you take two opposites to explain a whole. And it's pretty clear that the Hebrews understood that the couple, he, uh, heaven and earth, meant the entire universe. Uh, when the uh, Greeks translated, you know, the Septuagint, when they uh, translated Genesis 1-1, they actually used the Greek word cosmos for that. So it says, in the beginning, God created the cosmos or the universe. But when you slip to chapter, uh, verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 2 of chapter 1, it starts using a triadic expression, heaven, earth, and sea. So when you read the creation accounts, wherever it says heaven, earth, and seas, it's talking about this planet, the heavens of this planet, the skies, in other words, where the birds live, the earth, and the sea. But when it only uses the expression heavens and earth, that typically is used in Hebrew to refer to the whole universe. So you get the impression that the whole universe was created at some distant time, and then it says the earth was tohu vabohu, that it was here, but it was not suitable for life. It was, um, some people say unformed, but I like to, uh, or, uh, they say, uh, what's the uh, traditional uh, English I'm trying to think? It's typically uh, unformed and unfilled is, I think, a better translation. So it's here. Something's here, and it was probably here from the initial creation of the heavens and earth. Now, how far back that was in time, I don't know. 
Some people like to say that the whole universe was created in 6,000 years. I don't think that's what the Hebrew says. We don't know how far back the angels were created. We don't know when those other planets out there that Ellen White talks about were created. It could have been a long, long time ago. So the Earth could have been sitting here in a tohu Bohu state, unformed and unfilled for a long, 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 long time. Millions of years, I don't know. But it was here. Then what God does is he takes that material and he makes it habitable. That's the point of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. He then forms it and makes it livable, and he starts filling it with the birds and the fish and the humans. So I personally don't think the Hebrew has a problem in allowing for the matter of the earth to have been here for a long, long time. But life seems to be a recent phenomenon of only a few thousand years ago. Okay. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm right. I'm just saying the Hebrew seems to allow it. <laughs> Well, if we're correct about saying, you know, in the be ultimate beginning of the whole universe, you know, the heaven and the earth, God creates it all, um, the stars could have been part of that initial creation, you know, of the universe. So however old you want to say the universe is, the stars would be that old as well. It's interesting when you come into the creation account, you come to the day where, you know, the sun and the moon are brought into existence. Even there, there's some Hebrew scholars that say they weren't created. The uh, formula in the Hebrew actually suggests they were appointed. That's a technical argument. I'm not sure if it's right or wrong, but when it comes to the stars, it says he made the stars also. And uh, there's a bit of, a, again, a debate about that among Hebrew scholars, but to me it seems possible that the stars were already there. And the uh, Hebrew writer is just saying, look, uh, God makes this world. And then he reminds the reader that he also made the stars, implying the stars were already there. But he doesn't want to leave any doubt in who's reading the story that God created everything, including the stars. Even if the stars were already there, yes, Yahweh made them too. There's not anything in the whole universe that Yahweh didn't make. So that was the important point. So the stars could be very old also. The Hebrew seems to allow for it. But, you know, that's one of those things that can go either way. And some people might argue they're more recent. The next question, is there a catch-22 between Genesis 1 and the concept of other worlds in the great controversy cosmology? I don't think so. Again, if you see Genesis 1, 1 has a mirrorism. If it's sort of an introductory statement, in the ultimate beginning of the universe, God made everything, that making of everything, heavens and earth, if it is indeed a mirrorism, would also include other possible planets. I think it's in early writings in our Adventist you know, uh, understanding. Ellen White talks about other planets with other beings on them. They had their own trees of knowledge of good and evil and so forth, but they didn't fall. We did. So that would probably all have happened before the creation of our earth. So they were all, you know, the whole universe, uh, even in the New Testament, it talks about principalities and powers. Everybody's kind of looking at us. We're sort of the theater of the universe as everyone's watching the great controversy unfold. So I don't think there's a problem in having other planets out there, even with other inhabited beings on those planets before this earth is created. How far back? I don't know. <laughs> we'll find out in heaven. Right. What is the current state of the search for transitional forms? And maybe we need a... a yeah, that's not my area. I, you know, I have a background in biology, but I don't specialize in that. One of the people uh, over at Geoscience Research Institute, Tim um, Standish, is actually working in that area. There, from my reading, and I'm no better than any layperson here, my reading is that that's still a controversial thing. Uh, evolutionary biologists, of course, insist there must be transitional forms like Archaeopteryx and so forth. But some people who have looked at those studies and issues in detail suggest that a true transitional form is yet to be found. So it's a, a topic of hot debate. And I kind of stand back and watch people better than me uh, argue that one out. So we certainly have a lot of variety 
in terms of flora and fauna mm -hmm. on the planet. We, we also have that in human, in human beings. Mm -hmm. How did the various races come about? Um, God has placed within all organisms, including human beings, uh, you know, the genetic uh, code, the DNA, has a remarkable flexibility, to use layman terms, and uh, there seems to be embedded in uh, DNA tremendous potential for variation. And I think God even recognized that things on the planet would change. Certainly they've changed after the fall. We don't know what kind of change was involved before, but God apparently put a certain adaptability into organisms so that as they would confront various environmental challenges, food situations, temperature, whatever, that humans and other organisms through time can make minor adjustments to those situations so that they're better adapted. So I don't have a problem, I even see that as part of God's genius of having a, you know, a certain amount of evolution to allow us to adapt. The big question is, is that ability we have, that tremendous this flexibility in our DNA code that it allows all this wonderful variety, is that enough? Is it sufficient to create whole new organisms? And again, that's the great debate. The uh, neo-Darwinists, you know, the gradualists would argue, yes, you can go from a, uh, you know, a mouse to a giraffe, to use a bad example. Um, I don't think that has really been established. That's actually uh, another debate with people who advocate punctuated equilibrium. When they look at the genetic, you know, uh, mechanisms that are suggested to allow enough change in an organism through time, they say, no, it doesn't really work that well. You, you cannot make the big jumps, and so they argue for periodic massive jumps uh, so that these evolutionary change, changes can happen all at once. So I don't see, as I look at the literature, a good mechanism for speciation, or, or, or at least jumping to major kinds. Uh, I see that as a, a continuing problem, but I do see a lot of potential for a lot of variation within organisms, within species. And I think we see that exhibited in the human races as well. They don't, you know, by the way, anthropologically, we don't even use the term race anymore. That's been an unfortunate term historic that's actually led to racism and bigotry and so forth. And certainly for Christians, we're all children of God. That's something that I would probably be dropped out of vocabulary and probably do society a good bit too. We're all children of God and all we are doing is exhibiting uh, great variation that God has through his uh, graciousness and his uh, wisdom and his sense of beauty, all this wonderful variation. But to suggest that uh, there's anything less than that uh, devolves into something we don't want to get into. It's unchristian, yeah. I think we can even see in uh, life forms today that there is adaptation. Absolutely, yeah. That's my, that's my understanding. It makes perfect sense. Even a good creator God would build that in. Okay, a couple of questions about the flood. First, the flood story seems to depict rain as being foreign to the antediluvians. Mm -hmm. How does this compare with your depiction of the post-fall changes in creation? Yeah. Keep in mind that when I was discussing Genesis 1 and 2, I gave a context for that story. We believe it was written by Moses to prepare the Israelites to leave the land of Egypt to go to the land of Canaan. So the point is when Moses is telling the Israelites about you know, rain and thorns, he's not, he is talking about there were no thorns in the pristine world. He's also suggesting there was no rain there too. But he's not really addressing the issue of, uh, what he's really pointing out is when they get to Canaan, they're going to have to depend on rain. He doesn't really specifically say where the rain comes from or when does the rain get introduced. But if you read later in Genesis, he explains that. It's after chapter 2 and chapter 3. Where does the rain first appear? With a flood. So I'm not contradicting that at all. We don't have any evidence from the biblical perspective that rain existed prior to the flood. Rain does come with a flood and it's a judgment. 
okay? But what Moses' point is that you Hebrews, when you leave Egypt, you've been depending on uh, river water, the Nile. When you get to the promised land, you're going to be depending on the rainfall. So that's part of the uh, subtext as well. And the next question, can the flood explain the different layers or, or strata of the ge geological column? And that, that could take... Yeah. yeah, it's a big topic, and that's one of the sources of contention. There's a few of my colleagues who are sitting in the audience today. I have a few geology friends. Uh, the geologic column is very complicated. You know, uh, you have lots of layers around the world, and they each show their own unique, uh, what can I say, depositional context in history. The short answer I have is when I look at large sections of the geologic column, yes, I think it's compatible with what I know and my understanding that these could have been laid down by a large water catastrophe. Um, there's nothing, when I look at a layer in the, ge uh, in the geologic column, like at the Grand Canyon, it says, you know, uh, courtesy of Noah's flood. We had the same problem in archaeological strata. It doesn't say, you know, uh, destroyed courtesy of Joshua and the Israelites. What we see is the footprints of some activity. Sometimes we'll see some burn layer, and we have to kind of make an inference, and sometimes we try and tie it to biblical history. We look at a lot of catastrophism on very large scales in the geologic column. To me, this seems very compatible with a biblical mabul. And I think the mabul is more than, and I try and tell my students this, it technically does not necessarily mean a water flood. The word might, uh, there's a... a one suggestion of an etymology that ties into Akkadian and it suggests it actually is a, um, a catastrophe. We, we always say Noah's flood. It might be better to say Noah's catastrophe. Uh, it talks uh, in the New Testament about a second catastrophe will come, but it will not be of water, it will be by fire. And it's interesting at times in the Genesis account it says, I'm going to send a mabul of water. In other words, the word mabul by itself doesn't necessarily mean water. The Hebrew writer actually had to define it by saying this will be a mabul of water. So the, the last mabul may be one of fires. The point being is that this was bigger than just rain coming down, the water getting deep, and all the animals drowning. I think we have to look at processes that include, you know, continental drift, orogeny, mountain uplift, you know, subduction. Maybe all of these very complicated geological processes were part of what we call Noah's flood. But it's not just water getting deep and all the layers being washed around by water. Certainly that was a big component of it because the Bible says so, but I think we have to allow our, our understandings to go even beyond that. And again, there's some of my colleagues here in science uh, have more sophisticated understandings of the strata than I do, because I'm just a little archaeologist. I work at the very top of the geologic column. Okay, here's a question about um, the thinking of evolutionists. They suggest a mechanism for evolution. Mm -hmm. Is there an attempt by creationists Oh, uh, you mean t uh, an attempt by creation to understand change or evolution? I'm trying to, what's the question exactly? Well, maybe we can first ask, what is the mechanism that evolutionists um, propose as, as causing yeah. evolution? Well, one of the traditional engines of change in evolution is, you know, dealing with genetic mutation. That's a major thing that organisms will, you know, that the genetic code will mutate and that will create a new element of the organism, you know, maybe the eyes will change or the limbs will change or the digestive system will change somehow. So, uh, but mutations, as my biology friends that work in this more say, most of them don't really lead to productive or beneficial change. Uh, most mutations tend to be detrimental. So I don't believe
believe that genetic mutation by itself is an adequate engine for evolutionary change. That's also partly what led to punctuated equilibria. They're looking for something else that happened on a massive scale. But I think they're still struggling with it. I think evolutionists really have trouble fully understanding and explaining the engine of change. I think probably, in my opinion, the creationists have the upper hand in showing that there's more problems with their theories than there are, you know, uh, solid possibilities. And in terms of the evolu evolutionists, uh, their, their, their theory about how life started in the first place, I mean, when I was growing up, it was the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. I don't know that that's still the... Some people still advocate it. There's starting to be a few people understand. But these, by the way, I should say, these are out of my area. I deal more with, um, uh, I'm an archaeologist, and I deal a lot with the Hebrew text and ancient Near Eastern you know, uh, myths and so forth, so I'm familiar with their flood stories, their creation stories, I'm familiar with what the biblical text says, and I work with later biblical history quite a bit through archaeology. Uh, in fact, that, maybe I'll make a little point on this. You know, a lot of people today, including myself, will come forward and will pontificate on stuff. I've got a PhD behind my name, and that can sound very impressive or intimidating or silly, depending on where you're coming from. But, you know, my, from my own perspective, these issues are very, very complicated. When you talk about creation, if you really want to get into this, think about how many academic disciplines it talks about. My point for saying this is to maybe instill a little humility for all of us, into all of us, because I'll hear some New Testament guy, he'll go off saying, ah, oh, the creationists, it's all nonsense. And I kind of wonder, well, how much hard rock geology have you had? Have you studied stratigraphy? You can do a whole PhD just in stratigraphy. You can do a whole doctorate in soft rock geology and hard rock geology. You can do a whole PhD in invertebrate paleontology, invertebrate paleontology. You can do a whole PhD in all aspects of genetics. You can do a whole doctorate in all sorts of aspects of physics and theoretical physics, practical physics, you can do astronomy. See, all these people from different disciplines on this campus and elsewhere, they all will speak to the issue. But it touches upon so many complicated issues. I'm a little bit in awe and a little bit scared to speak out too much. You probably need a dozen doctorates just to get going on the topic. You know, really, I'm serious, because these are all complicated. Uh, in archaeology, we have a problem where an archaeologist will dig one site in the Middle East. There's thousands of ancient sites. But they'll dig one site, then they'll interpret the entire history of the Middle East by their one site. Happens all the time. You know, and their conclusions may disagree with what some other guy's finding in his site. So they have this big fight. Well, from my site, everything you say is crazy, you know? And the same thing can happen in these kind of arguments. Some physicists will say, look, I've got it all figured out. It doesn't matter what any other discipline says. This is the way it's got to be, and you know, evolution is true, whatever. And I would say maybe it's a little bit over all of our heads. It needs a little bit of humility. And, and these scientists, you know, if you're really getting into the creation issue, what about philosophy? How about a PhD in various areas of philosophy? And what about biblical studies? How many doctorates in archaeology do you have when you're, you know, talking about this? And uh, biblical linguistics, you know, how many of you really have the Hebrew down and the Greek down and so forth? There's so many areas you have to master, it gets a little intimidating. So I guess we all need to be a little bit humble. So there's my little speech and uh, know that we're all in this together and we all do our best to try and make sense. At the end of the day, I have found great assurance and confidence in trusting God's Word. Some of these things are so much bigger than me that I find that's the best way to go. And by the way, you know, I'm not an expert in physics or in geology. I have achieved in my own little discipline a certain bit of, uh, uh, what can I say, attainment in archaeology. I'm on, as I mentioned this morning, I'm on the board of the American Schools of Oriental Research. I've published a lot. I'm well respected. I was just invited to run for vice president of the Scholarly Society, you know, and I'm invited to help edit books with non-Adventists all the time. So I guess I've kind of made it, and people think I'm a pretty good scholar in that area, and yet I know that there's so much more I don't know. It's a little bit, you know, uh, 
uh, arrogant to go around sounding like we've got it all figured out. So ultimately, I've had to still fall back on the word of God and trust Jesus to lead me. I think it's true that the more you learn, you realize that you really don't know that much. Exactly so. Okay, maybe this is a little bit more along your line. Can you, <laughs> can you comment on the theory that Moses interpreted Genesis from older texts? That's a, actually, that's an uh, old theory that goes back. A number of scholars propose this idea, and the idea is basically this, that when Moses wrote Genesis, he didn't just get the information from a vision that he had from God. Uh, there's a number of scholars for a lot of reasons, including looking at the text of Moses closely. They think that maybe Moses actually had access to some ancient documents. Uh, there's a fellow named P.J. Wiseman from England actually proposed this idea back around World War II. And he kind of wonders, this is sort of the speculative part of his theory, that maybe when Moses was wandering the wilderness and he was in Midian, that maybe um, as he came upon his father-in-law Jethro, that maybe Jethro had access to some of the history of the early Hebrews. So there was sort of a relationship between the tribe that Jethro belonged to and, and the Hebrews going way back. And so maybe he had an account of Adam and account of some of the other patriarchs and maybe Moses looked at that. Um, there's the way the um, various sections of Genesis are organized. Scholars refer to the possibility of colophons being there. That was sort of a transition uh, phrase that occurs between one ancient text and another and some of the Hebrew phrases that go between one chapter and another look like ancient colophons which would suggest Moses was using early sources. Luke, when he writes his gospel, says that he interviewed a lot of people and consulted a lot of sources before he wrote his gospel. So it's not impossible that Moses himself, even though he was inspired, consulted some of these old sources. We don't know that for sure, but there are some scholars suggesting that idea, and maybe that's what Moses did. Well, then can you take that to the next step and give us some of the evidence that there may be out there that shows that Moses did actually write the first five books? Well, we do have, oh, you mean that he wrote the first five books. The evidence for Moses writing, we do have these little evidences from sources, but the evidence for him writing it are, there's a number of them. When you look at the structure, um, literary structure from Genesis 1 through 11 and then Genesis all the way to the end of the chapter, a number of scholars have seen chiastic elements where the uh, literary text is written in kind of, a, it's hard to describe a chiasm, but where uh, biblical text and words kind of mirror each other. You, you'll say something at the introduction, and you'll kind of uh, say a certain sequence of themes, and you get to your point, and then the second half of the, the pericope, or the literary unit, starts going down in reverse order, re reiterating those themes. That's why there's a lot of repetition in the Bible. You, you see that even in English. And so that these build-ups build literally to a point, and then the descending down to where the last point is, looks very similar to the first point. These are called chiasms. And we can see these structures going through the entire first 11 chapters of Genesis, and in some cases, all the way through the entire book, suggesting that the entire book was written by one person in a very careful, methodical way. And we also see linguistic hints, and there are some historical elements that also suggest that one person was writing all these things. This is a hot debate among Old Testament scholars. Traditional historical critics will deny this fervently. They'll say, no, no, we've got our sources, JEDP and others. Uh, but I think there's more and more evidence suggesting that the traditional documentary hypothesis is wrong. People may have used sources, but it was not late uh, pious frauds concocted like the critics say. It seems like there could have been an early writer who did pull some early things together, but wrote one grand unified literary work. And I think that the uh, momentum is shifting more and more that way. Now here's a question about the patriarchs um, and some of the um, archeological evidence and findings that are out there. Has there been any, any evidence 
in, in terms of where the graves of the patriarchs are? There are traditional locations for the patriarchs. We have um, south of Jerusalem, there in Hebron, we have the grave of um, uh, several of the patriarchs are located there. Um, they have gone, you know, Jacob, Isaac, uh, Abraham. They have gone, in some cases, those are actually shrines today. Jews worship there and Muslims worship there because they share this uh, heritage. Uh, so you don't just go dig up the tombs. But some archaeologists on occasion when the Israelis have occupied some of these areas, they've actually gone into some of them. And they have found some evidence that the location in which the, uh, the tombs themselves are empty, by the way. They have these structures you go into and they're called a cenotaph. They're a great big fake sepulcher. And if you open them up, that, you're not allowed to do that very often. There's nothing inside. But they are built on top of some caves that are underneath the current worship places. And some of these caves have pottery and evidence going back to the patriarchal period. So there could be an old tradition that this was indeed the location that was remembered through the centuries all the way up through you know, the Jewish, Christian, and even the Islamic period. We don't have 100% proof of that, but there are these traditions and they may be true. But I can't say 100% for sure though. And is there evidence in the Jewish culture that, that these sites are actually um, very sacred areas? Yeah, the Jews to this day consider these very holy places. When you go there, you have to wear the little kippah, the hatch, you know, you have to get permission to act. But they typically, both Muslims and Jews, will allow you access to these places, and you'll see them praying. Oftentimes, they try and keep the Jews and Muslims separate from each other so that there's not a war. Once in a while, tragically, you'll hear, like in the Temple Mound area, which is sacred to Christians, Jews, and Muslims, there'll be a clash and there's bloodshed. And the same thing happens periodically at Hebron. You know, once in a while there'll be some nut from either group will go and shoot up people they don't want them to worship there. So that happens. But they do have strong traditions. And while some of these places are not authentic, archaeologically, historically, a lot of them very well could be. Now, is there a record of the Ten Commandments being found in any other culture, any other ancient culture? Certainly elements of the Ten Commandments uh, are found in other cultures, but I don't think that uh, I'm aware of any that has them exactly like we have them. There are some interesting stories of the Ten Commandments being found, for example, where was I? Uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, there's a famous discovery of a stone there that has a copy of the Ten Commandments, and people are wondering how, they got, how that got there. Did it come over from some Jews from biblical times? It seems more likely to me, I was actually visiting the site recently, and it seems like some Jews from the 19th century actually made a copy of that and wrote, but they interestingly wrote it in Paleo-Hebrew, as the, uh, Moses would have used. But by the time that they wrote this stone, they uh, were aware of Paleo-Hebrew, and I think they made a bad copy. When you look at the letters, it looks like a school kid trying to copy some letters. They didn't write very well. But, but in terms of other cultures having an exact copy, I'm not aware of any, but I have seen elements of the concepts of the Ten Commandments in other cultures' moral laws. Yeah. Now, uh, this question wasn't submitted, but someone asked me earlier today, uh -huh. and I think you can give a better answer. A few years ago, there were um, rumors, or there was, uh, I guess, evidence of the Ark being, uh, Noah's Ark, yeah. being, uh -huh. being discovered. Um, can you comment on that? We have tried to investigate those claims as they come. The short answer is no. We don't think Noah's Ark has been found. Um, there has been, Ron Wyatt has made a lot of claims. I won't go into all of that. We've tried to investigate a lot of his claims, and it sounds exciting. He's found Noah's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the place of the Red Sea where the chariots went across and everything. We've gone to each of those sites, my, myself, some of my graduate students, some of my colleagues, 
and we've investigated them. Uh, even though we came a little bit skeptical, we still wanted to have an open mind. We have not been able to verify any of the claims, to be honest. And I could give a lecture on each one of those. We've been to the Red Sea place with the chariot wheels. We actually had a team of eight Andrews grad students go diving there and the whole bit. We couldn't verify the claims. They were misidentifying table coral for chariot wheels and some wheels that fell off of a ship. There was a shipwreck there and some of the modern wheels look sort of like chariot wheels and they misidentified some of those and they published them on the internet. Uh, but none of those are uh, true. Um, people were quite upset with us who are uh, advocates of this. Uh, we work at the Siegfried Horn Archaeology Museum, and when we wouldn't verify their claims, they wrote nasty letters to the Little Horn Museum, which I thought was rather clever. But uh, the thing is, we, we do believe in the biblical account and the stories, and we would be thrilled to find the Ark of the Covenant in Noah's Ark. We believe that these were real historic things, so they could theoretically be found, but we have not found them. And we think it's very important as Christians uh, that when we present evidence to the world, we use good evidence. And if we use bad, now some of you are saying, oh, what about, you know, why are you then supporting the flood? Well, I think we have pretty good evidence there for that, actually. I'm willing to, to stick with that. But in terms of a lot of the false archaeological claims, when we make those, and they're pretty obvious to train scientists that it's not valid, it does uh, make it hard to defend our faith. So, so we believe in the Ark, uh, Noah's Ark and the Ark of the Covenant, but they haven't been found yet. Okay. Well, the last few questions are more of uh, seeking for advice. But before we go there, I just want to ask you, if there's someone here who is interested in actually coming on a dig with you, what's the possibility and how could they get involved? Very easy. We love to take volunteers. Um, you do have to pay your expenses to go. <laughs> but uh, we have a dig going virtually every summer. There's probably at least three Adventist projects. There's one that's uh, mounted from uh, La Sierra and CUC, I think. They dig at a site south of Amman called Tel Elumeri. Uh, Mike Hausel works in Israel from Southern Adventist University. We have two projects from Andrews University at Hespan, where Siegfried Horn first dug, and we're working, I'm working at a site nearby called Jalul, which is bigger than Hespan, and we think it may be the true biblical Heshbon. We just found a series of pools there last season. And so uh, we think these may relate to the pools of Heshbon that King Solomon talks about. So every summer we've got Adventist teams over in the Middle East digging, and all you have to do is send me an email, and I'd be delighted to have you come on one of our archaeological digs, or I can direct you to one of our sister digs, and you'll have a great experience. There's nothing like working in the land of the Bible. Yeah. My email address is very simple. It's just yonker, Y-O-U-N-K-E-R yonker at andrews.edu and if you google andrews university in archaeology you'll find our archaeological webpage, and you can learn a lot about our research and excavations there okay okay our next question how do we um, combat the neo-evangelical thinking well, I think the first thing is to become aware of the problem, and I'm finding a lot of that. Even some of my uh, professor colleagues at the seminary weren't really aware of this third hermeneutic, and what I see happening is a lot of our Adventist scholars are, un, what can I say, unknowingly borrowing a hermeneutic that's not really, uh, does not derive from a good scholarly basis. They'll read a book by some guy who's a, you know, a scholar somewhere, he's a Christian, they'll say, well, that's an interesting idea. And again, I'm giving simplistic examples. He says the days are not real days, and the story is not literal. And they get all excited and say, well, maybe this solves our creation evolution problem. If it's not literal, we can accept the long ages. The problem is that that source of literature is not good stuff from a scholarly perspective. 
And so I think just being aware of that, look at where the guy's coming from, what his you know, perspectives are, see if he's an, he claims to be an evangelical and where he's coming from, and uh, that will help a lot about whether his stuff is considered good, valid, uh, you know, scholarly work or not. So that's at least a starting point. But another simple thing is how does, does their claim line up with what Scripture actually says? How does it line up with what Ellen White actually says? As Adventists, we place uh, pretty good stock in Ellen White, and some of these works clearly contradict, you know, what Ellen White, for example, she makes it very clear that the week, the first week was a literal week, those days were real days. So if we are going to be faithful to that claim, then these other uh, works reveal themselves to contradict that very readily. Okay. Now the next question is that strikes closer to home, I think, for many of us. Um, in your experience, you've uh, had to converse with a lot of non-Christians and a lot of non-Adventists. But when the, within the Adventist church, the teaching of theistic evolution um, is coming in, how can we approach those who are teaching this? Um, how can we better talk to them? Yeah. How can we deal with the situation in a way that does not harm the family of God, mm -hmm. but at the same time holds the truth? That is a delicate question. It's, it's a tough one. There's a, working at the seminary, you know, we always want to maintain a pastoral attitude. And, you know, as a person working in science, again, in archaeology, you know, I work with colleagues. I edited a book recently, co-edited a book with some of my colleagues, and they're evolutionists, and there were chapters dealing with, you know, uh, Paleolithic sites. Neolithic sites and so forth, they go much older than what I as an Adventist feel comfortable. So I'm interacting with these people all the time. Now, um, when you're working inside the church, the, the challenge is we as a church believe something, and the church has a right to say what it believes. And at the same time, I want to help you. I, I guess my point a moment ago was that I see problems occasionally. You know, I'll look at something, how do I fit that into my biblical view? And I don't always have an easy answer. Sometimes the answer presents itself, sometimes it doesn't. So I can appreciate that some of my you know, colleagues, scientists and theologians, aren't sure how to fit something together. But at the same time, all of us have an obligation to the church we serve and to the constituents we serve. On that basis alone, that should, uh, I think, prohibit us from saying things that are out of harmony with what the church believes. I think there's an ethical issue there. I am a father of four children. They're uh, they're not children so much, they're all grown up. My daughter's 30, and uh, I have a son who's studying at the seminary, he's 28. My youngest, though, is 17, and she's getting ready to go to an Adventist college. And she's thinking, which college do I want to go to? Now, see, I'm kind of split on this, because I'm a teacher, but I'm also a parent. And there's probably certain colleges I would love to have her go to, and there might be one or two I wouldn't want her to go to as a parent. And uh, that's because they aren't reinforcing what I want my child to get at an Adventist school. If that makes sense. And I feel as a parent I have a right to expect that the teachers at one of our colleges reinforce what I believe has a member of the Adventist church and as a parent. Now, I know there's going to be some people who are very upset with me with that. That's just the way it is. I can't help it. I want my kids to get a good education, yes, but I also want them to be re, uh, well grounded in Adventism. Now, here's my other problem. I'm not an expert in geology or physics, perhaps, but I do study uh, science quite a bit. I read quite extensively. I, I read the Hebrew Bible quite extensively. I'm very familiar with the, you know, the textual problems and so forth. Sometimes I hear things coming out of some of our Adventist teachers that I just think is bad scholarship. I kind of alluded to that a little bit today. Some of the reinterpretations coming out of Genesis I just do not think are good. 
So on that basis alone, if I know a whole bunch of teachers are, you know, teaching bad stuff, I wouldn't want my student to go there. See, my, my kids have the curse of being my kids. And I happen to be a university teacher. And so I have more than just a layman's opinion on some of these things. I think some people are teaching bad stuff on a scholarly level. In addition to that, I've heard with my own ears, so I'm being a little bit, uh, well, I won't be too specific, but I've heard a few people who are controversial. Uh, some of them are Bible teachers. Some of them are science teachers. And I've heard with my own ears what they say. And uh, while I know why they have the problem, I think that they're wrong on the scholarly basis, and they're also wrong in representing Adventism. I can't be snowed to say, oh, we're teaching good Adventism. No, you're not. In some cases, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited. I just know you're not telling the truth. I know some of these people personally. We've had private conversations, and I know the diverse opinions. So my honest opinion is that I wouldn't want my kid to go to some schools where some people are teaching these things. So that's just reality, and I apologize for feeling that way. But I really, I mean, to people that might be offended, but I really feel that uh, our kids have a right to get a good, solid Adventist education in an Adventist school. So I don't know how much more I need to go on that. But <laughs> so how do you deal with them? Yeah, yeah. How do you do it? I think we need to be as pastoral as possible, but I think teachers are, I guess, in a different position. And I think teachers have to be held accountable more readily. Then, you know, if, uh, if there's an educated person with a PhD and they happen to be in my church and they say, man, I'm a theistic evolution, I just cannot come to grips with it. I'm not going to say, well, out of the church for you. I, I feel that we need to continue to pray and work and study as long as they're not confusing uh, young people and uh, you know challenging the church in an open way it's okay for us to struggle with our problems that's what the church is for so on that level I have no problem but when you're in a position of authority and you're in front of people whether you're a pastor or a teacher you have a sacred and ethical and a moral obligation to be supportive of the organization you're working from and don't pretend that well this is just an alternate the church has officially spoken on its positions on this they have voted actions repeatedly even since the fundamental belief number six in the case of creation, there was a document produced at a three-year sequence uh, where the church leadership brought together scientists theologians. They voted a concluding statement where they reaffirmed in more emphatic language our belief in a six-day creation and so forth. And that was then uh, voted again by the administrative council of the general conference. Since I'm taking my paycheck from that organization, I feel an ethical moral obligation to be faithful to what the church is teaching. And when I look at, as I mentioned earlier, I look at what people believe around the world, 94 to 97%, according to various polls, believe this. So it's not right for me to say, I'm going to ignore everybody. I don't care what the church voted. I don't care what everybody else thinks, and I'm convinced this is right. If I really felt that, I would feel for myself, I'm speaking for myself, I would have to resign my position as a teacher and do something else. I might, I, you know, might still want to be a Seventh-day Adventist, but I have to do something else. So that's kind of where I am personally on it. Uh, so I would I try and encourage teachers to come in line with who the church is, pray with them. I would try and be kind, but there might come a point, I don't know where that would be, where it has a teacher and a constituent and worried about my own kids, I might have to say, look, brother, look, sister, I can't have you teaching my kids. Amen. Yeah. Paul gives this wonderful advice when he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Absolutely. So uh, we have spent a lot of hours. It's been a long time, longer than we meant to. <laughs> learning a lot. There's a lot of information that you covered and a, much more that you were not able to get to. But if, there's, if someone wants to go to one place where they can find more information, or perhaps there's a series of books mm -hmm. or something that you can uh, refer, refer them to, uh, where would you suggest? 
information's kind of all over the place, um, probably depending on what your interest is. If you're interested in science stuff, one great resource that's right here on this campus is the Geoscience Research Institute. They have a number of newsletters and publications. They have their little journal origins. Uh, there's a number of scholars that publish some great books, but they are a good clearinghouse. They'll know what the literature is. And not all of it's Adventist. They know of other people working on these problems. They even know people who are against the Adventist position. So that's a great resource to get information in terms of scientific uh, material. And there's some good people in this community. Uh, I see uh, Dr. Leonard Brand, Dr. Ariel Roth, and a few other folks are here who have worked in this for years. If you're interested in more biblical stuff, you can email me back at the Institute of Archaeology. I'm part of the Old Testament Department. And I'm happy to uh, point you towards books and articles and different venues that deal with these biblical issues. There's, you know, uh, some of the stuff I present has been published in various places, some by me, some by my colleagues who are working in the same area. So I'm happy to direct you to those articles, those books, and those publications back at the seminary. Or I can put you in touch with a seminary professor if it's a biblical issue who's been working on that. We've got a lot of great scholars back there. In fact, I'm very, uh, I need to say, we've got some great young scholars. You know, some of the problems work in a certain generation. I hate to say that. Guys just about my age and a little older. Sometimes there's a few younger people too, I know, but we've got some great young scholars back at the seminary who are getting top-notch PhDs. My colleague Roy Gain, University of Berkeley, he's one of the best scholars in Leviticus anywhere in the world right now. And we've got a number of others who are making major impact in scholarship. So we've got some good people that really understand the Bible. So contact us at Andrews. We can put you into the biblical stuff. Contact Geoscience here. They can put you in uh, touch with science stuff. Okay. okay. And my final question for you We've spent the entire day looking back in history. But if we look at where we are currently, right now, in this time, we are in the end of time. Mm -hmm. um, and we are told, here's the patience of the saints. Mm -hmm. Here's they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. In all of this discussion about creation, about archaeology, how does our faith come into play with this? Well, certainly faith is a key component. I try and remind my students, you know, it's fun to have these arguments about creation, evolution, or archaeology, and so forth. At the end of the day, though, I've never converted anybody. I know lots of archaeological details. We can talk about the historicity of David, you know, and the writing of Moses and the camels, and, you know, all sorts of cool stuff that's been found. A lot of stuff that harmonizes very nice with the biblical story. But I've never converted anybody on those facts. The ultimate conversion comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and the conviction comes through the Holy Spirit, not by an intellectual argument. The Lord does say, come, let us reason together. We're created in the image of God. That means our minds are a component of that. God does reason. That's the essence of our existence is thinking. However, the conviction ultimately is a supernatural experience, an encounter you have with Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. So if you're going to convert somebody, that's the angle. You never argue anyone into the kingdom. You have to encourage them through the relationship. Okay. Well, thank you so thank much, you. Dr. Yonker. It has been a pleasure to have you here, and it's been a pleasure to have all of you here with us for the entire day. Uh, let's close the day with the word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful that you have given us so many answers in your word, and also through the um, things that we find in the world around us. But Lord, we know that there are many answers left, left uh, many questions left unanswered. And we may never receive those answers here on earth, but we know we will have all eternity to sit at your feet and hear you tell the story. And we pray, Lord, that you will prepare us for that, that you will make us ready to inherit your kingdom. 
We thank you for the Sabbath hours. We pray that you will continue to be with us through the rest of the Sabbath day and on to the new week. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.